Welcome to Beyond Your Why podcast, where we go beyond just talking about your why and actually help you discover and then live your why. You see, we believe that knowing your why, that driving force behind every decision you make and every action you take, is the essential first step to really knowing yourself. It allows you to move forward faster and have a bigger impact. If you're already a fan of the show, then you know that every week we talk about one of the nine whys, and then we introduce you to somebody with that why so you can see how their why has played out in their life. This show will be more powerful for you if you've already discovered your why. If you still need to do that, head over to whyinstitute.com and discover your why today. It'll only take you about five minutes. Now let's meet today's guest. Welcome to Beyond Your Why podcast, where we go beyond just talking about your why and actually helping you discover and then live your why. So if you're a regular listener, you know that every week we talk about one of the nine whys, and then we bring on somebody with that why so you can see how their why is played out in their life. And so this week, we're talking about the why of better way, to find a better way and share it. So if this is your why, you are the ultimate innovator, and you are constantly seeking better ways to do everything. You find yourself wanting to improve virtually anything by finding a way to make it better. You also desire to share your improvements with the world. You constantly ask yourself questions like, what if we tried this differently? What if we did this another way? How can we make this better? You contribute to the world with better processes and systems while operating under the motto, I'm often pleased but never satisfied. You are excellent at associating, which means you are adept at taking ideas or systems from one industry or discipline and applying them to another, always with the ultimate goal of improving something. And so today I've got a great guest for you. His name is David Anderson. And so David is at the forefront of entrepreneurship, board leadership, and visionary growth. And that's where you will find him, a strategic growth driver, problem solver, synergist, mentor, and quality visionary. His passion for launching, transforming, and scaling business in challenging economic and crisis situations is evident from the moment you meet him. David has garnered comprehensive international business experience via working in the White House and serving in several blended roles at Entrepreneurial Organization, or EO. During his global experience, he has communicated and built strong relationships with leaders from all over the world. Currently, as the CEO and co-founder of Off Madison Avenue, an advertising and marketing company, David seamlessly navigated business survival challenges during the 2007-2008 crisis, 9-11, and the death of a partner with intellectual honesty, strategic influence, and deep fiscal stewardship, growing business by 20 plus percent in 2021 with consistent year-over-year improvement. Off Madison Avenue, at Off Madison Avenue, David expertly guided customer behavior by generating big ideas and constantly perfecting the marketing mix across multiple channels. Here, he identified lucrative market opportunities, inspired a passion for the brand, and drove customer acquisition and retention. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Gary. Man, I need a copy of that, man. I sound really good there. Who wrote that? I wish I could say so many nice things about me. (laughs) (laughs) It was impressive. So it was very long. So we're going to get to unpack it, dive into that a little bit. So where are you now? Where do you live right now? 
So I am sitting here in Tempe, Arizona, right by ASU campus, where I also went to school. As we were talking a little while ago, it's a frigid 61 degrees today in Arizona, which for us is brutal. For the rest of the U.S., they're laughing at us. No sympathy at all. For most people, you're going to get none. I was up in Denver during the holidays. It was minus 14, wind chill minus 27. So 61 is not frigid. Yeah, we're spoiled rotten here. (laughs) Well, take us back in your life now. Where did you grow up? Where'd you go to high school? And what were you like in high school? All right. Well, for all the old people on here, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. They know what that means. I was born in Arizona, but lived here only a couple of years. And my dad, interestingly enough, me being an entrepreneur almost my entire life, was a total corporate guy. Got transferred back to Manhattan. So we lived in New Jersey, but all of our family was here in Arizona. So I spent a lot of time here, came back, went to ASU here, took me more than four years. We won't go into how many years, nor my GPA. But after that, I I kind of just needed a change and ended up back in Washington, D.C. for a little over four years. Some of the most fantastic learning, fun times of my life. And then back here in Arizona since the early 90s, where I went to work for somebody for a short time and then really started my entrepreneurial ventures, serious entrepreneurial ventures, which I've been in for 25 plus years now. Okay. So for those of you listening, David's why is to find a better way and share it. How he does that is by challenging the status quo and thinking differently. And what he ultimately brings are simple solutions to help others move forward. So David, back to high school real quick. What were you like in high school? What was it like hanging out with you? Well, to translate how you explain a better way, we drive people crazy because we're never happy with anything. We're always like, what if? How about we do this? How about we do that? Being totally honest with you, Gary, I really wasn't like that in high school. Hmm. I have really evolved. I was more, you know, fly under the radar. Most people from high school probably wouldn't even remember who I was. In a lot of ways, it was what could I do to get by except for... I was taught from my dad who started work in a Fortune 25 company in their warehouse and became a senior vice president. I learned the value of a hard work ethic and all through high school work, through college work. So while I am by no means the smartest tool in the shed, I will outwork anybody, work harder and doing that. And I will tell you, I still fall into that, but I had the absolute privilege of working for two presidents of the United States for political reasons. I won't get into them at this point because just the state of politics now, but I learned some really, really valuable lessons. And one of the biggest was the importance of the people you have around you. You're only as good as the people that you have around you. And I got an up close. I worked in the executive office of the president and I got an up close view of just some of the most amazing people you will ever meet, politics aside and all of that. And I just learned a lot. And I learned a lot. I learned about people who had that why and that vision thing of what it was going for. And that's really where I can say my transformation really started. I was pretty young when I did that, mid-20s. I wish I would have paid a lot more attention to the learnings that I've had, but I was kind of a late bloomer and didn't really get all of this till later on in life. Okay. So let's talk about this fly under the radar thing. Why were you a fly under the radar? Well, I'd love to hear your perspective on how tall were you in high school? 
<laughs> yeah, that's actually a great question. I am not a tall guy. I'm five, 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 six on a good day. Two boys in their 20s who both tower over me. Being honest, I was bullied a bit as a kid too. Changed schools when I was in, I think, fourth grade. And it was a pretty brutal experience. And I talk about that now. And so it just being shorter, being bullied, I will not, I think I know that all had an effect on me kind of maybe being my real self at a younger age. I had no idea because I can't tell obviously on a screen how tall anybody is. But the reason I mentioned that is because I had a similar experience. I grew late. I grew mostly after high school. And so... I know that experience looking younger than everybody and how that can maybe keep you more in your shell, if you will, until finally you get out and realize, hey, you know what? I'm just as good, if not better than everybody else here. Let's go rock and roll. And Well, yeah. And in high school, you're judged in a different way. I am an average athlete at best, which in high school, that means a lot. And I wasn't part of the cool crowd and all of that. So life has a lot to do with who you associate yourself with going back to what I said before of what I learned. And it was just kind of simpler to keep a low profile. Yeah. Gotcha. Otherwise you get picked on. So, okay. So off to ASU, what was college years like for you? When you got to college, how old did you look? Yeah. Well, I don't look young anymore. (laughs) Luckily, everybody can't see me on screen. But yeah, most definitely. You kind of stand me next to some of the athletes, football players with full beards and six foot three, 200 pounds. And so, yeah, I looked really young going through college. And what I would say is college is where I kind of started maybe seeing some of my potential wrote a book and some other things now. And if you've seen, I joined a fraternity and I became president of my fraternity. And so I kind of, my journey is from president of my fraternity to working in the White House type of thing. And I really kind of started learning that I had a voice is a way. Don't let external factors, don't let people judge you. You control your own destiny. So I really, it it was in that college time that I kind of started, had opportunities for leadership positions. And honestly, people pushing me into them, not me actively seeking them. So you had to find a better way as you went along to deal with what you were dealing with, whether that was in your own head or anybody else's head, you had to find a better way, right? And you had to think differently. You were never going to be the six foot five, 250 pound guy. That wasn't you. Nope. No, I don't know how much you've read or heard Brene Brown speak or anything like that. But without a doubt, I was a victim of my own stories, the stories we tell ourselves, defining ourselves. I was just fortunate enough to have some people in my life that really pushed me. And honestly, a lot of luck. I'm not going to fool anybody. I ended up working in the White House because I met a girl at a party one night who worked there and she introduced me. But some people there took me under their wing and really pushed me to be what they saw in me rather than what I thought of myself. And my work ethic had me take advantage of that. And now I try to do the same thing is people that work for me and others, my mentoring, my coaching, and that is help other people reach their full potential. My purpose, my why is to help people and companies thrive. That's really what I'm about and what my why is. And a lot of that is a better way, mm-hmm. helping people realize there's better ways. Yeah. So, okay, you graduate from ASU. What was your degree in? In finance, actually. Finance. Yep. Finance. So yep. Never imagined you would go to the White House? 
took one political science class in college because I had to or it was an elective. And three years later, I am flying on Air Force One. I'm traveling around the world in the executive office of the president. Yeah, it's just strange how life works. But yes, that's exactly what happened. So take us into your very first day at the White House. Well, my very first trip that I did, my role was I was an elite advanced person with the president. So I would travel ahead of him and with him wherever he traveled domestically, internationally. And I would go somewhere between a week and three weeks ahead of him, depending international was more. And so I actually never worked directly in the White House because I was always out on the road, out doing things. And so my very first trip was just, I had no idea whatsoever. It was close to DC. So the next thing I know, I'm standing in a field waiting for Marine One to land and the steps come down and I'm 20 feet from it there. And it was just striking. Well, yes, the person, but also just what it takes to get around and the amount of detail that goes into it and behind the scenes stuff that everybody thinks it just shows up on TV the way they see it. It's always choreographed. So I'm struggling to put this together. You go from a paternity president at ASU and your first gig, if you will, at the White House is working with the president. Now, how the heck does that happen versus the other people that start at the bottom cleaning the toilets or whatever the heck they're doing and have to work their way up or working with a senator or whatever? You start with the president. Yeah, sheer luck. Now, there was a stint working in a bar in between there. And just a little bit more background of how it happened. I actually, right before that, when I moved to Washington, D.C. with no job whatsoever, it was just a place I wanted to go, lived in a hotel my first week until I found a place to live. I was working on Capitol Hill for United States congressman, a couple things that I did, senator, congressman. So I kind of had this introduction to D.C. And then once I was there, like I said, I met a person at a party one night who helped give me an opportunity to do the advance thing in the White House. Okay. So you were there for a couple of years and then decided it was time to get out of DC or how did that happen? Yeah. The boss, the president I was working for lost. And I just decided I didn't want to be a lifetime politics DC person. It was an incredible adventure for four years, but it was time to go home and kind of figure out what to do there. And so on my way, driving back to Arizona, a friend I worked with in DC called me and said, Hey, I have a PR firm here in Washington, DC, but I'm from Arizona and someday I might want to live back in Arizona. Would you want to open an office for me in Arizona? I didn't even know what a PR agency was, to be honest with you. I got home a couple days and then I went to the ASU bookstore. I remember this clearly. And it wasn't all digital back then. And I looked up books, PR 101, 102, 305. And I literally sat on the ground in the bookstore for probably three hours reading through all these textbooks. And after a while, I was like, I've been doing PR. PR is politics. I've been doing it. And so I said, sure, let's get started. Gordon C. James, public relations, a good friend of mine. I just talked to him today, an amazing guy who gave me a great chance. And that's how I ended up in marketing and PR. And after a couple of years working with Gordon, I did a brief stint at another place. And then for a whole variety of reasons, started Off Madison Ave with my still to this day business partner. So what is Off Madison Ave? 
We are a full service marketing agency with a real emphasis on behavioral marketing. It's how you get people to change behaviors. Back in the old days, towards the better way mentality. Back in the older days, there was a saying by a very famous marketing person, 50% of my marketing dollars are wasted. I just don't know which 50%. And marketing has evolved and it can be very measured and very focus now. And marketing is all about changing behaviors. It's about building awareness and changing consumer behavior to try your brand. And then brands are built by how the interaction with your brand is. And brands constantly have to look at a better way, constantly. I mean, what's the stat that 30 years ago, there's only 25 of the Fortune 250 are even still around 25 years later. Some statistic like that, I butchered that, but there is significant history of brands that don't keep up, don't find a better way, don't change, that go out of business or get gobbled up by somebody much bigger because they're not constantly looking for that better way. So give us an example of what you mean by how to get people to change their behavior. Like what would be an example of something like that? Well, for your listeners, there's BJ Fogg, who wrote the book Tiny Habits. BJ Fogg teaches at Stanford University and also is kind of known as one of the gurus of behavioral marketing. And it's really about the messaging and what you called, they changed the terminology, but triggers what motivates somebody to change a behavior. I don't know. Well, my wife doesn't let me go to grocery stores because I come back with everything except what she sent me for. But how many people just buy the exact same brand every time. Oh, I get that milk. I buy that peanut butter. I always drink Coke, not Pepsi or nothing else. So what do you need to do to change people's behavior to try a different brand? What are the stimulus that you need to give to get people to try something different, to change their ways of doing it? And there is a science behind it. And it goes to how you say things and what the motivations are. How do you learn from people's behaviors with one brand? or product or service? And how do you translate that into getting them to use a different brand or service? So there's a real science behind it and the steps that you take to get people to do that. Would you be able to give us an example of how you've done something like that or how a company has done something like that, getting people to change a behavior? Like what would be a product that you could think of that kind of illustrates that? Well, you can see it a lot. There's some classic brands that do it a lot. The Nikes of the world, even the Starbucks of the world, how they entice you to order larger sizes of drinks that they have just by the points. This loyalty programs are great ways to get people to change their behaviors because you're incentivizing them. You do so much of this and Yeah. Now, yet again, as of Tuesday, Starbucks added the number of stars for me to get another drink, but that's great ways of doing it is loyalty programs are a great way to get people to change behaviors, to go to places. We do a lot in travel and tourism. And by marketing people who do the same thing every year, but you can show similar activities that they do like outdoor adventure. People like to do outdoor adventure. So what type of things do you message to them to get them to try something different? Does that make sense? 
Yeah, maybe even something as simple as when you go through a drive-through when they suggest, hey, would you like apple fritter or whatever the heck it is with what you're ordering? You never even were thinking about an apple fritter. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what the significant increase in programs where you pay a flat monthly fee entices, okay, I paid one fee to this company, like my car wash, even though they're a client of ours, Cobblestone, 30 bucks a month. And I can go as often as I want, whenever I want. Well, how many times am I going to go to a different place once I'm tied in there? So they've kind of locked in my behavior now to, oh, and oh, by the way, I get points every time I do it to get me to free polishes and all of that kind of stuff that go there. How about Costco of people's behavior to go on Saturdays and Sundays to get the snacks the food samples. Have you ever seen people go there to get the samples? It's just ridiculous. People stand in line to have a little cup of three M&Ms to try to go there, but it programs people. Oh, we'll do that. Or even what? You can get a Coke and a slice of pizza for $1.49 at Costco and people take their whole families. It's all the behaviors that build on to get that there. And I didn't really realize there was a science to it. I guess it makes sense that there would be but you just kind of think it's trial and error and somebody gives it a shot and say it worked, it didn't work. But there's a whole lot behind it that we don't even know, it sounds like. There is. And with AI, with the continued growth of AI, it's going to become more and more and more prevalent. Building digital personas on customers. We have another company called Lighthouse PE, which is SaaS software product that embeds in any branded app and using location and other indicators is all about building an individual's behavioral patterns to send them the exact right messages at the right time to get them to take action. So does AI excite you or scare you? A little bit of both, to be honest with you. Some of this know what's it called, the chat thing, where you put a few words in of what you want. I have one son still in college, and I really had no idea how prevalent it was until he was telling me, oh, yeah, he swears he doesn't do it. And I'm like, yeah, right. Kids are writing their entire papers. This software is right. I need a three-page paper, 1,200 words on Roman Empire, and it does it for you. And so that kind of stuff. But I also saw, I think it was 60 Minutes, actually, story that professors are now, how do we make assignments that work around that? So the human mind will always find ways to work around the AI. But what does it mean for job growth in the future? I don't know. There's a lot of unknowns as AI continues to be embedded in more and more parts of our lives. What made me feel better about it, because same with me, I'm excited, but nervous about it, scared. Where's this going to take us? What's the end game here? And somebody was telling me that when the phone came out, when the telephone came out, people were predicting the end of the world. (laughs) It's going to change everything. No one's going to have a conversation. Nobody's going to know each other anymore and on and on and on. They're just going to do it through the phone and the end of the world's coming. And of course it didn't. So the same sort of thing is being predicted for this. Interestingly, right earlier today, I had an interview with a gal who's an AI expert. So we had this same kind of conversation. But you also have been participating quite heavily with EO, correct? Yeah, absolutely. If I could just kind of go back a little bit to what you just said, I think you're spot on. And 
we will continue to learn and adapt and grow and change. And we are in right now a massive innovation change with the proliferation of social media. And how are we handling that? Look what it's done to our political environment. Look what it's doing to creating good and bad around the world. And just like when we went from the agricultural to industry to the industrial revolution, there was massive change, the growth of urban cities, and we figured it out. And so there will be this and going to better way, I would say better way without thoughtful consideration for the ramifications of a better way can lead to a lot of challenges. And that's somewhere while people like me who just think, oh, better way, do it different, do it different. My team here is the one saying, whoa, Dave, interesting, but let's think about the ramifications of that. Let's think about play chess rather than a quick game of checkers, I think we can all do a better job of. So I'm a better way, but I'll tell you what, I need a significant counterbalance to that in my personal and professional life. So anyways, I just wanted to add that in because I agree totally with you, but where better ways sometimes get way out in front of themselves has led to me getting myself in trouble more than a few times going on. So Entrepreneurs Organization, yes, fabulous organization. Well, I think over 17,000 members now in 62 countries around the world. I had the privilege of not only serving on the board, a global board of directors, and but also the global chair up until July 1 of last year when my term ended. Talk about a group of constant better ways. <laughs> um, <laughs> Drove EO has almost 150 global staff around the world. Just think what those poor people go through with all of us better wayers. <laughs> so there's a lot of people that won't know what EO is. So what is the purpose of EO? What has it meant to you? Why did you get involved with it? Well, EO, yeah, it is the largest community of entrepreneurs in the world. So having like-minded people and one of the core functions, but by no means the exclusive is our CEO forums, founders, entrepreneur forums of somewhere between eight and 12, usually around 10 members that are within each chapter in the 60, in the almost 220, I think, chapters around the world now. And that's where our brain trusts are. There are like boards of directors, boards of advisors. That's where we go and talk about the best of things happening to us and the absolute worst of things happening. And not only in business, but in our professional lives. You can't separate the two, especially for entrepreneurs. We don't get to just drive home or walk downstairs now in this new world and switch on and off. So it's about supporting, prospering, and doing entrepreneurship in a way that changes the world. I firmly believe that if we got rid of every politician in the world and put entrepreneurs in place for them, and there are some entrepreneurs in government, we work to solve problems and make it a better place and stop arguing with each other. We don't have the luxury of sitting around and arguing forever. We have to get stuff done. We move forward. And I believe entrepreneurs do this and so I've been in situations where I've been in events with people from Pakistan and India sitting at the same table from Israel and India or whatever. And so it's just an amazing, amazing network of people around the world that are working hard to make themselves better, but also the world better. Yeah. When I was speaking at the EO Arizona group, it just felt like these are my people. These are the people that are out there 
they're doing stuff. They're taking risks. They're getting their butts kicked and they're kicking butt both. And it was really fun to see. It's exciting. These are people that are excited about what they're doing. Yeah. And it's also an extremely authentic group. I can meet an EO or anywhere in the world and be like, hey, how's it going? And they'll be totally honest. Oh, I'm having the worst year ever right now. Not only is my business down, I'm getting a divorce. My son's on challenge with mental health drugs because it just comes from a place of, we call it intimacy, instantly being able to be intimate with other people about how life is and that there's no fakeness. It's just, this is how it is. And 99% of that time, that person will be like, oh, I've been there myself before. Hey, let me help you. Let me introduce you to such and such. Hey, I know some people that might be able to help you. So it just is literally, I've met thousands, literally thousands of EOers as a board member. And I can count on one hand, the people that I was like, I would never want to hang out with this person. It's just really good people. What was your position? Global chair? I was the global chair. Yes. For the entire organization. Yeah. What does the global chair do? Well, lots of things. One, just it's a corporate board is what it is. I mean, we have a CEO, we have, like I said, hundred and something staff members around the world. So it is a corporate board. It acts, we have fiduciary responsibilities and that, but also the board and especially the chair, all board members was also kind of a worldwide ambassador for the organization, but also was very common for places that I went in other countries to meet with government officials or other significant entrepreneurs to help promote entrepreneurship in those communities. My viewpoint, I should say, and many others is if you look at the world, entrepreneurs are the vast majority who create jobs. We create jobs. We provide security to people. We are the backbone of the worldwide economy. When you look at entrepreneurship and the number of people that they employ and where they are, So it's a passion of mine of um, spreading that entrepreneurship, but also helping fellow entrepreneurs around the world. I'm sure we have a favorite person in common in Warren Rustand. Yes, I know Warren very well. He lives right here in Arizona, down south a bit in Tucson. But yes, I know Warren extremely well, a fabulous leader, but person who also has given his all to helping make entrepreneurs better around the world. So yes, very excellent gentleman. I had him on the podcast a while back and it's one of my favorite interviews. And it was interesting because no matter what I asked him, I don't know how he did this, but no matter what I asked him, he had an incredible answer. It was not like a basic answer. I'd say, so what does it mean to be a good leader or whatever I asked me? So, well, there's four things to that. I'm like, how would you know there's four things to what I was going to ask you? I mean, just, it was so crazy. Oh, great, Gary. You just raised the bar for me significantly. <laughs> Okay, I'll ask you the last question. Here's one. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given or the best piece of advice you've ever given? I kind of said it earlier. Don't let others define you. Never underestimate yourself. And one of my favorite books is Grit by Angela Duckworth. What we do every day in our business life and personal lives requires immense amount of grit. And we're going to have setbacks. If you don't think you're going to have setbacks, you're delusional. It's how you respond to them. And I have a 23 and almost 21-year-old, and that's what I tell them all the time. You know what? It's life, and you're going to have setbacks. It's how you respond 
to those setbacks and the grit that you show that will define you. And so never let anybody else define you. Never give up and just have grit because it'll get you through the worst of times because the good times will come again. Mm, I love it. I love it. So David, if there's somebody listening that wants to get a hold of you, wants to follow what you're doing, wants to look at your company off Madison Avenue, what's the best way for someone to get in touch with you? Well, you could look at offmadisonapp.com. I also have a personal website for some of the coaching that I do and boards of directors stuff that I do. And it's dwaleadership.com. My name is David Wayne Anderson, dwaleadership.com. And the email is dwa at dwaleadership.com. So you could go to the website or email me directly and learn a little bit more. I'm on LinkedIn. There's probably about three and a half million David Andersons. One of the most common names there is, but you can find me, David Anderson at Off Madison Ave or even in Phoenix, Arizona, you'll find me. One last thing before we end, because we didn't get to talk much about what kind of coaching do you do? Who would be an ideal client for you? So I work to help build high-performing teams. We all know that you can have the best strategy in the world, but if you don't have the high-performing team to execute against it, your strategy will never get executed the way to get real results. So I work with CEOs, but I also work with managers that have teams and how to make them better leaders. I'm not complete yet, but I'm well into also becoming a Marshall Goldsmith certified business coach. Marshall Goldsmith, number one business coach rankings many times over. And my favorite book, which falls exactly in line with the better way is what got you to this point won't get you to the next point. What got you here won't get you there. So I'm butchering it. Sorry, Marshall. But I'm a big believer in that. And it takes a team. As I've told you early on, you can only do so much as an individual and it's the team you build around you. I love it. David, thank you so much for being here. Really enjoyed it. And I look forward to staying in contact with you. Sounds great. Thank you very much, Gary. It's time for the last segment, which is guess their why. And I thought what we would use is Patrick Mahomes. So Patrick Mahomes is the quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs. If you know anything about him, he's kind of like the next coming of the best quarterback to be. He's already surpassed so many of the last best quarterbacks, including Tom Brady. He's passed in the five years. I think he's only been in the league for five years, but what he's done in five years surpasses what anyone else has done in those five years. So does that mean he's going to be the best of all time? No. But is he on that trajectory? Yes. And so what do you think his why is? If you know anything about him, I'd love to know what you think, because I think his why is challenge. I think he just does things differently. He doesn't follow the rules. He doesn't throw the ball like anybody else. He doesn't play the game like anybody else. He thinks outside the box. He just sees a different world than all the other quarterbacks before him. He's not stiff and in the pocket and just throws a particular one pass. He's all over the place in what he's able to do and willing to try. And so I believe that his why is to challenge the status quo. Let me know what you think. Thank you so much for listening. If you have not yet discovered your why, you can do so at whyinstitute.com with the code podcast50. If you love the Beyond Your Why podcast, please don't forget to subscribe below and leave us a review on and rating on whatever platform you are using to listen to our podcast. Thank you so much. And I will see you next week. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode and that through today's guest, you heard how important it is to know your why and how impactful it can be in your life 
and the lives of those around you. Be sure to head over to whyinstitute.com and discover your why today. Remember, the more you know about yourself, the more you'll know about others. I'm Dr. Gary Sanchez, and I'll see you on the next episode.